Father, we still our hearts before you in the busyness of our weeks and acknowledge that you are Lord and we have come together today to worship you, to acknowledge your goodness, to proclaim your holiness, to say thank you for your mercy and your grace that has been expressed to us and to pray for our church, for our community and for our world. Lord, we give you thanks for new life, for uh, we celebrate with Tim and Natalie and with Sam and Nicole. We thank you for the contribution that they're making to church growth and for the blessing of new life, for healthy, healthy babies. And we would ask, Lord, that their experience through uh, what can sometimes be a challenging period of life with loss of sleeplessness and, and other, other stuff that goes with that, Lord God, just undertake in that space. We thank you for the opportunity that you give us as a broader family to be family to these folks. Lord, we give you thanks for Brahm and Jess too and just pray for them as they make their way to Wagga and settle into a new home, into a new church, into new work. We pray, Lord, that you would open doors of opportunity for service, for encouragement, for connection and that you might confirm that they have chosen well in seeking you first and responding to your leading and guiding and for others too lord who during this time of fluidity and transition have had to change jobs or perhaps move house or move uh, into or out of the district god we just give you thanks that you are the one who journeys with us lord we continue to pray for our church as we navigate our way through the current restrictions that do constrain us in some respects we thank you, Lord, for the way you have shown your faithful hand to us in so many ways through this past two years and we affirm again today our desire and our intention to honour you and to be obedient to you and respectful to others. We continue to pray for our premiers in uh, the states that we live in, for our Prime Minister, for those who are in leadership and authority over us, Lord, for those who don't know you in those places of power and government, we pray that they might be influenced by your spirit in the manner that Cyrus was in times of old, a guy who knew nothing of you but was a, 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 a person that you were able to use. We ask, Lord, that you would nudge them in godly directions. We pray for those in our, in our seats of government who do know you, and there are many, Lord, we pray for those who proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and serve in the state and federal parliament. We ask God that they might seek you first and not be drawn into the, uh, the temptation of the world and the power associated therein. Lord, we pray for uh, our neighbourhood, for our churches in our district, for the church in our nation, for the church in the West, that we might seek the kingdom first and let other things follow lord we want to thank you too that you are continuing to work out the plans for us for this year ahead god we pray that we might respond to the leading of your spirit that we might be excited by the opportunities that there are in this world as it unfolds before us that we might be attentive to the needs of those around us that we might be able, with the help of your Spirit, nourish the spiritual hunger that there is in our community, even more than there was before as people try to make sense of the world. 
And God, we pray that you would draw us close to yourself too. As we come to your word today, we ask that you would give us ears that might hear and a willingness to respond to the challenge that your spirit puts before us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, some of you who've been around in church life uh, for long enough may remember a little book that became quite popular back in the year 2000, The Prayer of Jabez. Now, I'm not going to ask you to put up your hand if you've got a copy of this, uh, for reasons that will become obvious in a moment. For those of you who are not familiar with um, The Prayer of Jabez, and those of you who are a little younger might not um, be aware of it, um, it's a, a book that's based on a prayer that's found in the book of 1 Chronicles, chapter 4, verse 10, which says uh, these words. And this is pretty much all we know about Jabez. Jabez called upon the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my border, and that your hand might be with me, and that you would keep me from harm, so that, I might not, uh, so that it might not bring me pain. And God granted what he asked. It's an interesting prayer, isn't it? Simple, uh, succinct and quite direct. The author of the book, a fellow by the name of Bruce Wilkinson, asserted by praying this prayer you could see God's blessing in the manner that Jabez did and it was embraced by the church in the West. And broadly speaking, Wilkinson um, asserted four things. First of all, that God wants us to pray for his blessing and that's biblically true that God wants us to pray for his blessing on our ministry and to others and we've engaged in exactly that in just the last couple of minutes, uh, that God wants us to pray for spiritual power in our ministry efforts and that again is entirely consistent with what the scripture teaches and that it's also appropriate to ask God to keep us from evil, again uh, entirely consistent with what the scripture teaches and so all of the principles that you find in this little book the prayer of Jabez are true and there's nothing wrong with praying these things except that one of the things that happened was that people kind of got hold of this prayer and started to pray it as a as almost like a mantra you know if I pray this then God will do that if I pray this prayer, you know, before I get out of bed in the morning, before I do anything, then God is almost beholden to me to do what I've asked in prayer. And there, there were a number of evangelical Christians who treated this prayer as some kind of magical formula that would somehow manipulate God into blessing us. And in the handful of years, in the years 2000, 2001 or so, would you believe there were more than 10 million copies of the prayer of Jabez sold? It's incredible, isn't it? 10 million copies. It made the number one seller on the New York Times bestseller list in 2001. There were spin-off products. You could get the prayer of Jabez key rings. You could get the prayer of Jabez t-shirts. You could get mugs. You could get journals. You could get posters. You could get wall art. You could get all that stuff. And I rather wonder what Jabez would have thought about it himself. <laughs> but generally speaking, people couldn't get enough of the prayer of Jabez as though they'd found in the dusty archives of the Old Testament a secret amulet that would unlock the vault of God's blessings. And it's kind of interesting, isn't it, looking back on phenomena like this. What is it? 
What is it that drives us Christians to behave like this? Why was it so popular? And on, on the positive side, I think we can say, uh, at the core, it's a desire that we all have to know God's blessing, isn't it? It's, it's an entirely appropriate desire that we have to see God's activity in our lives. We long to know, the more, we long to know more of the life of Christ in us. We'd love to see God's Spirit lead more clearly. Who has not asked that question? Lord, if only you'd show me more clearly what it is you want of me. Have you ever, ever asked that question or is it only me? You know, Wouldn't it make it so much easier to witness to the community if God just turned up a bit more often and did some stuff that we could say, look at that, there's the evidence you're looking for? These things are, are deeply, deeply attractive. And uh, over the past few months I've been reflecting on something that Roderick uh, said quite plainly last week and that is that uh, typically God works through the ordinary, doesn't he? Typically God just kind of works almost undercover and, and yet we long to see something really expansive and something extraordinary. And then something like the prayer of Jabez comes along uh, and, and there's lots of richness in it. Please don't hear that I'm just criticising here. And we grasp at it. It becomes so popular because... Here, here is an opportunity for us to actually see what it is that we want to see. Here's the shortcut we've been looking for. The not-so-subtle promise of the prayer of Jabez is, do this and then you will see God at work. It's a very attractive temptation and it's not just found in something like this. There's all sorts of, you know, all sorts of things that the church has been drawn into over the years. You know, do this and then you'll see God, you've almost like you can make God do something if you follow these steps. There's, uh, there's the first sermon. Um, at, the, at the time when I was reflecting on the popularity of the prayer of Jabez, it got me thinking and it wasn't um, necessarily in the direction that you thought I might be thinking because I got me thinking if um, Wilkinson can write a book that's no more than 20,000 words which sounds like a lot, but it's not much. 93 pages, not many pages. If he can do that on one verse of the Old Testament, surely with my prodigious talent, I could do <laughs> something similar. <laughs> you are laughing and, and I, am, I won't be insulted. <laughs> surely, I was thinking, surely there's someone else in the Old Testament that I could pull up and, uh, and, uh, and I could write a little titchy book and I could sell 10 million copies. And so I started looking around. I started thumbing through the pages of the Old Testament and, uh, you know, it's no good looking for the big names because all of the big names have been taken, right? You've got to find someone who's obscure, someone who's done something heroic or someone who's done something hideous, it doesn't matter. Uh, someone who's just not likely to be heard about too often because you only find them in one verse. And guess what, everyone? When I was doing it, I found someone and this morning I want to share it with you. It's uh, a book that hasn't yet been written, but when it's written, it will become a bestseller. <laughs> it's called the Itai Declaration. Now, pop your hand up if you've heard of Itai before. No surprise, no shame. 
If you had not heard of the prayer of Jabez, you probably never heard of Jabez before either. But Itai is a character in the Old Testament who, uh, who I figure could provide me for a pathway to retirement, early retirement. <laughs> Let me just share with you uh, the kind of the pricey of what this is going to be about. Uh, if you've not heard of Itai, don't panic uh, because you can turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 15 uh, and there we will find Itai and what he declared, which um, is kind of interesting. So grab your Bible, let's um, have a look at um, 2 Samuel chapter 15, if you've got your Bible or a device or if you've committed the Old Testament to memory, um, however it works for you, it'll be helpful for you to follow along. It will be on the screen but I'm going to flick through it. Uh, so let's read through this passage. Now before we read the passage, the context is a, uh, is a pretty rough time in the history of the people of Israel. Uh, David is on the throne but his son, the third son Absalom, is conspiring to take the throne from him. So there's all this argy-bargy going on at the moment between David and Absalom. Absalom, as you'll see if you read back a little bit earlier, and I'll talk about this in a second, has been gradually building up his popularity and David is uh, in flight mode. Verse 13, 2 Samuel chapter 15. A messenger came to and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. The king's officials answered him, your servants are ready to do whatever our lord the king chooses. The king set out with his entire household following him but he left ten concubines to take care of the palace. So the king set out with all the people following him and they halted at the edge of the city. All his men marched past him along with all the Kerithites and the Pelethites and all the, and all the 600 Gittites who had accompanied him from Gath marched before the king. The king said to Itai the Gittite, why should you come along with us? Go back and stay with King Absalom. You're a foreigner, an exile in your homeland. You came only yesterday and today shall I make you wander about with us when you don't know where I am going? Go back and take your people with you. May the Lord show you kind kindness and faithfulness. But Itai replied to the king, as surely as the Lord lives, and as my Lord the King lives, wherever my Lord the King may be, whether it means life or death, there your servant will be. That's an amazing statement, isn't it? David said to Itai, go ahead, march on. So Itai the Gittite marched on with all his men and the families that were with him. The whole countryside wept aloud as the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley and all the people moved on towards the wilderness. There it was, if you didn't notice it, in verse 21, the Itai declaration, as surely as the Lord lives and as my Lord the King lives, wherever my Lord the King may be, whether it means life or death, there your servant will be. The Itai declaration, loyalty in troubled times. Can you see it on the bookshelves yet? You know, we don't hear much about Itai uh, in the scriptures. 
He's mentioned here in 2 Samuel chapter 15 and again if you jump ahead to 2 Samuel chapter 18, I'm not going to refer to the passage in 2 Samuel chapter 18 uh, but it's an interesting one, check it out later on. Uh, what we do know about Itai is that he was a Gittite and that he came from uh, the city of Gath. Now there's a little map here on the screen behind me that should give you a little bit of context, the first arrow there pointing to Jerusalem which is where of course King David was and Gath across towards the plains, across towards modern day Gaza, an area that was inhabited by the friendly or not so friendly actually Philistines. That's the kind of area the Philistines came from and we know that Gath was uh, Itai's home and Gath was a Philistine city and so it makes sense that we can say Itai was a Philistine. Interesting. It's interesting that um, the Philistines were a constant thorn in the side of Israel, particularly through David's reign. David had a really interesting relationship with the Philistines. If you have a look at these passages, you'll find there when David was racing away from Saul, who was trying to kill him, on occasions he fled into the areas of the Philistines. In fact, he fled to this very city, he fled to Gath, and while he was in Gath, uh, being pursued by Saul, he feigned madness before the king of uh, the city, whose name uh, escapes me right now, Achish, uh, and Achish gave him refuge while at the same time David's men were reaping havoc with Philistines in other places. So David was kind of playing both sides of the coin, so to speak, uh, and the king giving him refuge didn't realise that David at the same time was stirring up trouble uh, in other places. The Bible also records some of the amazing qualities, if you like, or perhaps we could say attributes of the men of Gath. Because there was a very famous Bible character that David was well acquainted with who came from Gath. Anyone want to have a guess who it might have been? It was Goliath. Goliath was from Gath. Chances are Goliath was a relative of Itai. We don't know that for sure, but in those times, you know, cities were not huge. Uh, lots of people were connected um, and so there's a good opportunity to consider that there's the possibility of a connection there. And Itai's declaration that we saw there in verse 21, I'll come back to in just a moment, is a really interesting one in the midst of a sad time in history in the people of Israel. You see, David's son Absalom, who was third, the third son, coveted the throne. Absalom wanted to be the king and uh, the scripture tells us that Absalom was a remarkably good-looking young man without a blemish on him. I'm not seeing anyone like him here today. <laughs> you know when I, was, <laughs> when I was young, when I was very young, I had a really... Um, troublesome mole on, on my chest and the doctor said look the best thing to do would just be to cut it off it wasn't it was nothing other than it used to get caught and it would bleed and all that sort of stuff and so the doctor who we went to regularly over many many years was in the days when you had a family doctor and you'd always go to the same one he, uh, he put me under cut it off solved the problem but it left the most incredible scar I don't know what happened but it came up as a great raised welt. You could see even where the stitch holes were. Now normally, 
you know, there's no blemishes. Well, there is actually. Um, but this one was, was particularly bad. And let me tell you, every time at school when we went swimming and you had to peel off your shirt or back in the days, boys' school, you know, we'd play shirts on, shirts off. Um, all my colleagues at school would look and say, man, what happened to you? It was so obvious. It was bright and it was uh, raised. And, and I got sick of telling the truth. <laughs> And so my, my normal line was, I was attacked by a madman with a knife. <laughs> Which is kind of true. <laughs> Absalom didn't suffer any of those things. He was without blemish. Our scripture tells us he had an amazing head of hair. I'm not even going to say anything about hair, Rob. Um, but... <laughs> You know, when he cut his hair from time to time, when it was weighed, you want to know how much it weighed? 2.3 kilos of hair. Man alive, he must have walked around like this at times. It was an amazing head of hair that he had. He aspired to the throne, we are told, and worked really hard to capture the loyalty of the people. In 2 Samuel chapter 15, 1, we, we're told that he equipped himself with, uh, with chariots and horses and 50 men to run ahead. He, he drew the attention of the people by the, by the ostentatiousness of his, of his carriage, if you like, by his, those he surrounded himself with. And it's interesting, is people are drawn to that sort of stuff. People kind of like to see, you know, someone's got something new or something different, you kind of want to know about it, don't you? True? You watch what happens, and I've seen this happen, in caravan parks. It's an interesting... It probably doesn't happen quite so much during school holidays when families are camping, but out of school holidays uh, when others are camping and have a little more time on their hands... Uh, you, you go into the caravan park late in the day and this is what you'll see. You'll see a whole heap of people who are already there sitting in their deck chairs with their, chair, with their little coffee tables, uh, with their beverage, whatever, and they're watching. <laughs> and if someone... Yeah, I can see some of our, our um, castaways people nodding. Yeah, if someone else comes into the caravan park bring, bringing their, their gear in, uh, they just sit there. They don't want to be seen watching, but they are watching. And they watched them set up and they watched them sort of packing the, well, unpacking their gear. And, uh, and you can be pretty sure they're saying, well, they didn't do that very well. Hmm, yeah, look at that, they've had five attempts, good grief. How did they you know? Really? Uh, but let me tell you, if that person who comes in has something new or different, you can bet your bottom dollar within half an hour, some of those people will be over there and they'll be saying, oh, that's an interesting uh, new thing you've got there. Where did you get that from? You know, People are drawn to that sort of stuff. And Absalom knew that. And so he set himself up with the chariots and with the guys running ahead and people were drawn, that the hearts of the men of Israel, the scripture said, were drawn to this. He, uh, he um, took it upon himself to sit by the road near the city gates. Now typically in the ancient Near East, that was the place where people went for resolving disputes, that kind of stuff, the gates of the city. Um, the king often would sit outside the gates and mediate disputes or whatnot, but Absalom took it upon himself to do that too. 
And so people would come and he would say, oh, if only there was someone wise enough in this country to, to resolve your dispute, let me help you with it. And so in a very real sense was acting as the king. And when he'd done enough to judge that he had ensured the loyalty of the people, he went to Hebron where he put his coup into action. And so we pick up the story there this morning where I read from a few moments ago where David flees because he feared for his life. And as we see from the text, um, if you come with me to verses 19 and 20, as David fled, he said to Ittai, one of a number of Gittites who were with him, but clearly Ittai, who was a leader amongst those people, because when we get to chapter 18, we'll actually find Ittai leading a big company of David's warriors... He said, uh, David said to Ittai, I, you know, go back, you're a foreigner, you're in exile, go back to your place, don't hang with me. You only came yesterday, why would you be loyal to me? What responsibility do you have in this place? And yet Ittai said, uh, I, uh, I will be with you. Back to the declaration, as surely as my Lord lives, as my Lord the King lives, wherever my Lord the King may be, whether it means life or death, there your servant will be. What a magnificent affirmation of loyalty. I reckon, I reckon the book's got legs, don't you? This declaration, it's one verse in the Bible, but goodness me, isn't it deep? What an amazing declaration of loyalty. No matter what happens, David, I will be there, even if it means life or death. Man, alive, that's a big statement. Goodness. When I um, get around to writing the book, which will probably be um, another 20 years, um, part of it, at least the first part of it, will be focusing on what it means to be loyal to those God has placed us around or loyal to those who God has placed us with. Now just think about that for a moment. What does it mean to be loyal like Itai to those that God has placed us amongst? What does it mean to be loyal to our husband or to our wife? What does it mean to be loyal to a brother and sister in Christ? You know, one of the verses that always comes up to into my mind, it's my least favourite verse in the Bible. You don't hear that very often from a pastor. Um, when it comes to loyalty to my wife, it's, uh, it's 1 Corinthians. Um, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, which says, Love keeps no record of rights or wrongs. You know, I so want to do that, but I'm not allowed to do that. Loyalty to a spouse means not holding on to wrongs. It means letting go of those things, it means forgiving, it means moving on, it means restoring relationship. And so we choose to do this and so truly love and so truly demonstrate loyalty. And there's a rich load of passages through the Old Testament, Proverbs in particular, talk about the loyalty of a friend, you know. What, what is closer than a brother? Someone who is loyal to you. And all of these things um, will be nice to think about as long as we can kind of park them over here. In other words, remove them from ourselves or um, dissociate ourselves from them, if you like. You know, think about hypothetical situations that, uh, that don't affect me personally. That often is the case when you read a book. 
but then um, we come to a passage like John chapter 13, verse 34, where Jesus said, A new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Loyalty to others is a very high priority in the kingdom, isn't it? Challenging words from the lips of Jesus. And as I said, it would be easy to, and it is easy to be loyal in the rarefied atmosphere of hypotheticals, but when it becomes real and practical, that's when it starts to be challenging. Let's, um, let's talk about one of the elephants in the room. This whole debate that we've been journeying through in the church, in the community, in the world around mandatory vaccinations has been a really divisive one, hasn't it? It's been deeply, deeply challenging. It's impacted couple relationships, it's split families, it's affected friendship groups and it's flowed on to how we engage with other people in the church. And I want to talk about that for a few moments rather than run away from it because it's not very brave to run away from these things when it's very real. One of the things that's exercised me the most in the past six months or so is how do we, as God's people, maintain unity that is so core to who we are in Christ in, this face, in the face of a deeply divisive issue, an issue that, as far as I can remember, I've never seen anything like it in my experience in church. How do we maintain the unity that we have in Christ when there is deep disagreement and division amongst us? For our elders, one of the challenges that we face is how do we model unity when, when in effect, we were forced into a situation where we had to divide the church in that way so that we could still meet? That was a challenging uh, place for us to have to go to. For me personally, what could I do as a pastor to be loyal to all of our congregation uh, to help people navigate the anger and the frustration and the pain caused by some and experienced by many when I too am wrestling with my own thinking and prejudices and bias and all of that kind of stuff? What does it mean? This is where the rubber really hits the road. What does it mean to be loyal to a brother or sister in Christ when they write something on Facebook that's offensive to us or if they hold on to a view we just can't understand how can you justify that no matter which side of the fence you sit on what does it mean to be loyal in that context Proverbs 17:17 17, 17 says that a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity an interesting verse, isn't it? And in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, Jesus prayed that his disciples might be one because he knew that Satan would try to tear them apart and would use any strategy to get between them and so cause division amongst the body of Christ. What does it mean to be loyal to those that God has placed us amongst? I've told you the story of my friend Graham uh, in the past, so forgive me for those of you who've heard this story before, as a fellow, no, not here by the way, <laughs> not a Graham that you know, um, we, had a, we had a very deep divisive um, difference of opinion over a matter of theology and, and we had some very robust debates. 
very robust debates. But here's the thing, this man was a man of God too and so we were able to be loyal to one another. We disagreed and we spent quite a bit of time talking about those disagreements but we always were able to say to one another, I still love you as a brother and I'll continue to pray for you as a brother and we were able to maintain relationship as brothers in the midst of all of that. What does it mean to be loyal to those that God has placed us amongst? Chapter 1 of the Itai Declaration is going to make some people a little bit uncomfortable because loyalty to those God has placed us with may mean having to be done with selfishness, it might mean prioritising the needs of the other over ourselves. It might require us to listen empathetically even though our buttons are being pushed. It will mean being done with pride and selfishness. It will mean questioning our own assumptions and it will mean choosing to remain in relationship even when there's tension and conflict. Chapter 2 was going to be about being loyal to God because if you think about it, Itai's declaration to the king, to King David, you know, wherever you go, I will go, whether it means life or death, is no less than what Jesus asks of us, is it? And truly, if we're going to be disciples of Christ, that's the same call and it's the same response that, um, that God asks for us. And so it's at this point my grand visions of selling 10 million copies is, is starting to fade because you can flog 10 million copies of stuff to people that makes them feel good, but I don't know that it's going to be quite so popular because it's going to challenge us a little bit. And we here in the Western Church are not good at that, are we? We're really good at making sure everything's comfortable. We're not so good at getting prickled by things from the Scripture. And so uh, the Itai Declaration is probably not going to make the number 100 on the bestseller list, or if it even makes a bestseller list or even if it ever gets written. This declaration calls us to a radical and challenging lifestyle. It is not easy. It doesn't make some kind of promise that you do this and then everything's going to be nice. It's actually going to be quite difficult. It's hard, let's be honest. It's hard having a conversation with someone we have a difference of opinion with. It's, let's be really honest, it's hard to love some people. And yet God calls us to love something. We don't necessarily have to like everything about them. We don't necessarily have to become their best buddies. But we're still to love them. We're to remain loyal to them. This is a message that's consistent with what being a disciple of Jesus is all about. Loving God without reservation. Loving others without condition. The words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, will be well known to you. He said... Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me for whoever wants to save their life will lose it but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? You know when Jesus was teaching these things there were an awful lot of disciples who walked away and said this is too hard. This is just too hard. It's pretty hard to sell Christianity when you start pulling out those sort of verses, isn't it? 
Itai declared unwavering loyalty to the king and Jesus demands the same of us. Now, uh, one last comment before I conclude this morning. Let me just say this. Um, the book's never going to get written. It's, um, yes, yeah, so please don't come and say, oh, I really think you should do that. Or, you know, I've got an idea for chapter three or anything like that. I don't want to hear it. Okay. It was merely a rhetorical device that I've used to convey a message this morning. You see, Itai's declaration is just one tiny little verse in the scripture, but it has massive implications. We don't hear much else about Itai other than, as I said, in chapter 18, where Itai has obviously remained loyal to King David. David's put him in charge of a third of his fighting force. We presume that Itai either died of old age or died in battle. We hear nothing else of him. But the legacy of his declaration is something that we really ought to reflect on. And not just reflect on, but take action on. One of the things Roderick did last week I thought was really helpful, and thank you, Roderick, in <laughs> he's probably wondering what on earth it was, uh, in concluding the message, uh, talking about um, taking the low job, the foot washing, uh, was the challenge of from this moment go and put it into practice you know go and look for that opportunity to do that thing of service that low job in the same way today as you go from this service uh, you might want to consider what does it actually mean in practice I don't know what it means for you I know what it means for me what does it mean for me in practice to demonstrate loyalty to those that God has placed around me when I um, do funerals from time to time, one of the last things I do, um, well, there's a couple of things actually, one of them is to say, you see that green sign down there? What does it say? It says exit. You are walking under an exit sign when you leave this building today. Life is full of exits, but every exit is an entry. Think about that. You exit the building you enter the foyer, you exit the foyer, you enter the outdoors. In the same way, a funeral is acknowledgement of an exit and an entry. What are you going to enter into after this life? It's a great message. You love it. <laughs> the other thing I'll say is this. <laughs> if anyone wants to sit down and plan their funeral, I'm up for it. Um, the other thing I say is this. You know, we think life is just going to go on and on and on. But today, the context of a funeral is a stark reminder to us that there will be a time where we're not able to speak to that loved one, where we're not able to mend relationship, where we're not able to say the things that we wished we'd been able to say. And so today I say to you, if there's a relationship that's broken, if there's a loyalty that needs to be expressed, if there's something that needs to be forgiven or asked for forgiveness, today is the day to address it. Because there may not always be a tomorrow. And so, in a totally different context, because we're not here at a funeral today, the same challenge today. What does it mean to express loyalty to those that God has placed around you today? What does it mean to express loyalty to your husband or your wife, to your children, to your grandchildren, to your parents, to your grandparents? What does it mean to express loyalty to those that you're sitting with today? Look around, see who it is. 
These are people who are walking the same journey of life, faith and salvation as you are. We are connected by this wonderful salvation we have in Christ. What does it mean to be loyal to that person? And I don't know what that looks like for you. We're going to pray now and just ask that God might reveal to you what that might be. In the same way as we think about uh, loyalty to one another, what does it mean to be loyal to our church? What does it mean to be abandoned in uh, serving God? My goodness, what an amazing year it would be if we got hold of this declaration and said, you know, Lord, I will just do whatever, whatever it takes to follow you. My word, this would be transformational, wouldn't it? Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks again for uh, the word from Itai, uh, an inconsequential character in a sense in the Old Testament who for most, if not all of us, before we started today and probably read but not really registered, who said something significant, seminal in a way, in terms of his relationship with David and a forerunner of our relationship with you, Jesus, our King. And so we pray that we might get hold of this declaration ourselves and say to you, as surely as you, the Lord, lives wherever you may be, whatever it is you want us to do, whether it means life or death, whether it means putting to death some of our old self and taking on the life of your spirit, there your servant will be. Lord, for each of us today as we think about being loyal to those that you've placed us amongst in these difficult and challenging times that we face, Lord, let us be courageous, let us go in the power of your spirit, let our words and our actions be seasoned with grace and may we see your blessings poured out upon those who walk in favour with you. God, we want to thank you for our church. We thank you that you have sustained your people and will continue to do so. You are an unchanging God, you are a faithful God, you are a providing God and we worship and glorify you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Bob, thank you.